everybody. Welcome to Grow Up, where we're healing the child within us while lovingly and respectfully raising the child in front of us. It's time to grow up. Welcome to episode number three. I'm your host, Amy, and thanks for being here. If it's your first time here with us, um, just wanted to mention that I'm just a regular adult, woman, mom, friend, daughter, all those titles and hats that I wear like anybody else. And I'm just here on the podcast kind of breaking down some of those issues that we all face day to day and kind of normalizing the conversation around a lot of big issues that I feel like surround the motherhood journey, the parenthood journey, and just, you know, living life, carrying anxiety, carrying grief, Um, all those kinds of things. So we're just here to kind of break it down and figure out how to keep growing through it all. Uh, Lately, I have been, I guess, through the ringer. (laughs) Nothing really terrible, but um, it's just been a busy month. So it's just past back to school time. My son just started pre-K. You know, of course, all that goes with that in the pandemic very thankful that we are um, in a county in Michigan that is requiring children to be masked at school because I was having some anxiety about him going back unmasked since he is in the population of children that cannot receive the COVID vaccine just yet. Um, And for those out there listening, just, you know, a background about that is that we have just been very cautious ever since COVID broke. I was a hairstylist um, of about, oh gosh, I was licensed in 2005, so someone out there can do the math. Um, And I've been doing hair. And in March 2020, when everything went down, um, we had to pull my son out of school. He had just started. He had five days, five whole glorious days under his belt. And yeah, it kind of all came to a screeching halt. Um, He was two at the time or two and a half. And um, my husband had to start working from home. And then eventually he was essential. So he was working from home for a little while and then had to go in once things got more um, clear about what everyone was dealing with and the protocols that needed to be in place. And as far as my career, um, you know, touching the public face to face with people and all of that, um, and then plus a childcare situation for my son, it just was too risky, um, in our opinion. So I actually have not been working since the start of the pandemic. So um, we have been home with my son. We skipped preschool last year um, just because the numbers in Michigan were skyrocketing and kind of all over the board. And everyone just had to make the best call for their family. And for us, it was just keeping him home and safe with me, which actually is part of the reason I was led to this work with the podcast and everything else just because I hit so many um, bumps in the road for myself. My anxiety kind of rock bottom in a lot of ways. Had to dig really deep and find different passions. Um, Maybe because I just needed someone to talk to that wasn't a toddler. How about that? (laughs) Um, Or my poor husband who, you know, comes home and is my only like, you know, portal to the outside world at this point. Um, Anyway, so yeah, my son is back to school. So that came with a lot of, you know, big things. Oh, that's my cat coming to say hello. Shout out to Tilly. Um, Anyway, so yeah, she's just a forewarning. If you hear any purring or meowing such as that in the background, she's always loved like audio and videos. I don't know if she hears me talking or a video talking. She like comes up and she's trying to get in on it. So 
little shout out to my co-host today. Um, anyways, yeah, he's back to school with a lot of big feelings. Um, it's, you know, he was, he adjusted great. I'm actually kind of surprised at the resiliency of children. Um, you know, he's just been through so many changes with, you know, having childcare and the nod and the pandemic and masking and not leaving the house and dropping his extra extracurricular activities and, you know, just all the things, mom being home all the time, all the stuff that I've been going through. It's just been a lot. And I think um, it was odd on that first day. I was expecting to feel some relief, just like, oh my gosh, finally, he's able to like get what his brain needs and get socialization because he's an only child. And we don't really have, you know, cousins, his age that he's been playing with or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's been interesting. Um, and it was weird because the second he turned around to just go into the classroom like a boss, um, I was like, oh my gosh, look at him go. He's so old and so he's doing so well, you know. Um, of course, we're only like two weeks in at this point, so anything can happen. But yeah, it was a lot of interesting feelings just in the culmination of kind of a crazy pandemic experience, as I know everyone out there can relate to in their own way. And then to add on to that whole situation, I decided about pretty much right around the same time, two or three weeks ago, to open my own salon. So, you know, why not? Let's just pile it all on at once. So that actually opens this weekend. I am, you know, trying to find some spare time here to record this episode, which I've been really looking forward to doing. Um, but yeah, it's just like, let's cram in one more thing. Why not? I was laughing because when the opportunity presented itself, I met, was talking about it with my husband and his word for word response, pardon my French, but I'm sure you're used to it now from me, was that's like your thing, right? Like, fuck it, just do it. <laughs> and I had to uh, really appreciate my husband in that way, because just with the way the podcast kind of went down, and I got kind of catapulted into that and now catapulted into opening my business. He's like, yeah, just do the things, you know, and um, it's really terrifying. And it's, um, I'm kind of a type A control freak, which has honestly been part of what's led me to be opening my own studio space for um, for hairstyling, just because of the Delta variant and trying to keep, you know, just a lid on as much as I can for my son and our safety. Um, it's just been very interesting. But if somehow through all of that, I've also felt really like relieved and kind of more like myself than I have in a long time. Maybe it's that feeling of maybe losing a little bit of your identity in a way or changing your identity to motherhood and then all of a sudden kind of like doing things for myself and owning my passions and owning what makes me feel good. So um, so yeah, it's been kind of a, a weird mix of feelings and I'm not really trying to figure it all out. I'm just kind of rolling with it. But somehow I'm falling in the middle of being absolutely, you know, scared out of my mind and like, what on earth am I doing? Who do I think I am? And um, also feeling really exhilarated and really excited about the future. So that is what's going on over here, which is a lot to um, kind of decompress. But here we are. So yeah, so today I thought I would dive into a little bit of my backstory with, um, with medical trauma and grief um, surrounding things with my brother's death and all of that type of, um, that type of stuff. I've had a few people reach out to me directly about that and kind of how it spoke to them. 
So I figured, you know, let's kind of go there. I think it's something that, I mean, not think, it's definitely something that has shaped me, um, my life, my upbringing, my opinions, my fears, my anxiety, um, my joy, all the things, my entire life um, since, I mean, at this point, it's been, it'll be 20 years this year since my brother passed away. So for, you know, the majority of my life at this point, which is very strange to say. Um, but yeah, I've lived more years on this earth carrying that weight than I have without it. So it's kind of odd when um, your things like that in your life, those milestones get to that like almost like tipping point of like, I always equate it, I guess it's my um, Catholic school upbringing, but I re equate it to like, you know, BC and AD for timelines, like before Christ and after death. Um, it's like before the event and after the event. And I think anybody who has had a traumatic event or a shaping experience of some kind, you know, a big shift in your life, I think everyone can kind of relate to that, that you have almost like your, your naive self or maybe your like baseline self and then kind of what happened and then what it spurred in you from that point on. So yeah, so growing up, um, three kids in my family, um, the spacing between the three of us, my older brother Scott is or was two years older than me, then myself as a middle child, and then my younger sister Beth, who is nearly four years younger than me and six years younger than my brother. So that was our little squad growing up. Um, my brother and I, from a very early age, I mean, since, you know, his whole life, or no, that doesn't make sense. My whole life. <laughs> um, and after two years, when he was a toddler, when I came along, we just were pretty much inseparable. So we took to each other immediately. Um, we both were pretty high energy. I was kind of a tomboy growing up, still kind of am. Um, and so I think just having the older brother, you know, role in my life just kind of fit seamlessly into the kind of kid that I was as well. My mom would always joke and call us Frick and Frack. So it kind of gives you an idea of um, just our kind of dynamic that we had a very similar um, kind of energy or at least a very um, compatible energy and that we were very, very close growing up. So my sister... Um, being a little bit younger than us, I think as close as I am to her now, um, and she's incredible and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about that at some point too. Um, growing up, it was, my brother and I were definitely closer than my sister with us. Um, my sister was a little bit more quiet than us. Um, I think because she was four years younger than me and six years younger than him, we kind of were just like doing our thing when she came along and she was a baby. So, um, felt like her and my mom kind of had a stronger bond maybe a little bit in that way that my sister was a little bit quieter and liked to kind of do quieter things my brother and I were kind of like you know rolling or riding our rollerblades in the basement and you know I don't know doing crazy stuff jumping on the trampoline bouncing off the walls my sister was you know reading books and and playing puzzles and dolls quietly or hanging out with my mom so that was kind of the um just to paint a portrait of everything. So um, my brother got kind of sporadically ill, and that was when we were teenagers. So as, as teenagers do, we were still very close, but, you know, we had, I don't want to say grown apart, really, but we were in a new season of life. So my brother um, was 
what do we think about this? It's been so long since I've broken down the whole story. My brother was 16 when he got sick. Um, I was 14 at the time, and that was June of 2000, June of 2000, actually. Um, no, 2001. Um, right after school got out, he had just finished his junior year of high school. I had just finished my freshman year of high school. My sister had just finished her fifth grade year of grade school, if I'm not mistaken. Math has never been my strong suit, let me just say that. So, um, yeah, one morning... I, it actually was Father's Day morning, and I remember it clearly because um, in our old house, my headboard of my bed in my bedroom butted up to the bathroom like pipes, so it was right next door to the bathroom, and I could hear like anytime the water was running, so whether that was a sink or a shower or a toilet or whatever, I could hear it in the pipes. And I remember I'd woken up a little bit early that day because a friend of mine had spent the night and she had to go home early because obviously it was Father's Day and she was going to spend the day with her father. So we woke up earlier than normal, um, you know, when you have a sleepover when you're 14. And I walked her downstairs to like meet, you know, her mom or whoever picked her up that day. And I went back upstairs and I was trying to go back to bed laying in my bedroom and I was hearing just like commotion in the bathroom and I didn't really know what was going on. So I came out um, of the bathroom and I see my brother was like, you know, kind of hunched over the toilet as if he was going to be, you know, throwing up and my mom and him were talking and it was just chaotic a little bit and um, just trying to figure out what's going on. So I come out and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm like, what's happening here? And basically he had felt sick to his stomach and was telling my mom that he couldn't see. So, you know, my brother had never had visual issues before. He actually didn't even wear glasses or anything like that. So he's telling my mom that he can't see and he's throwing up. And um, my mom, you know, of course, as any mother would, is like, what do you mean you can't see? Like, you know did something hit you in the eye? Like, what do you mean? You know? Um, and of course, like, we're both kind of like, okay, don't be dramatic. Like, you can just say, like, your head hurts. You don't have to say you can't see, you know, because we just are 100% not knowing what's going on. And uh, so basically, my mom had to run downstairs and, you know, get herself ready because it was morning and um, was like, you know, kind of said to me, Amy, will you walk with Scott to his bedroom and like get him some clothes, etc. because apparently I have to take him to the doctor. So she calls the pediatrician, they say to come in and you know, they're going to look at him and my mom's still kind of confused, like this seems serious, but also like, is he being dramatic? Um, because what do you mean? You can't see doesn't make sense. So of course, as a typical teenage sister, just messing with my older brother, I'm in his closet and I'm like, do you want to wear this outfit or that outfit? You know, and at that point, he just very blatant, you know, just no inflection was just like, I don't care. I can't see like just and I was like, oh, oh, like this might be real because I was showing him outfits and teasing him kind of a little bit and he just wasn't having it he wasn't taking my bait he couldn't even tell what I was holding up um and I just remember being like huh this is really weird maybe he really can't see so um we start walking down the stairs together to go downstairs once he's dressed and 
he had his arm like linked into my arm, my elbow. Wow, I'm getting emotional. Um, linked into my arm. And I was supporting him while he walked down the stairs and I was telling him, you know, which steps to basically like take a step, take a step and we're walking down the stairs. Um, we got to the base of the stairs and again, not even thinking about his experience, I kind of like let go of his arm and he kept walking and he walked directly into our kitchen cabinets. Um, and it was at that point, my mom and I kind of looked at each other like, oh, he really can't see. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting emotional. I didn't think that I would. I talk, I've talked about this in the past and it hasn't happened. I guess for me, what's coming up right now is that would be, unbeknownst to me, the last interaction um, I had with my brother, conscious. Or at least where he was responding to me. Um, so anyway, my mom takes him to the doctor. She's driving down um, a main road here in Michigan, and we have to pass the hospital to get to his doctor's office. And he asked my mom, where are we? Because again, he can't see. And it's becoming more and more apparent to all of us that, well, not really all of us, I wasn't there. It was just him and my mom. But throughout the course, it was becoming more and more apparent that he truly wasn't hyping it up. Um, that he was being honest about his symptoms. And he told my mom very calmly, he said, I want you to get into the turnaround. If anyone from Michigan, you know about our wacky Michigan lefts, um, get in the turnaround and I want you to take me to the hospital. And my mom, again, doing exactly what she was told by the pediatrician who she was on the phone with and telling them he can't see, da, da, da. They were adamant. No, we want to see him. We want you to bring him in. So my mom said to him, I have to take you to the doctor first. I'm not just going to take you to the hospital. Your doctor said to bring you in. And of course, I mean, hindsight's 2020, which I hate saying nowadays because of the last year that we had with the pandemic, but it's true. And I think my mom has a lot of feelings about that because she wishes she would have listened to him, but she was listening to her doctor and you don't know until you know, right? Um, so she takes him to the doctor. When he gets there, the doctor basically immediately says to go to the hospital. Get to the hospital. They're waiting in the ER. Um, he's sick. He can't see. Um, they get him back into a room. And basically, they realize that the pressure, he has fluid building up in his brain. And the pressure in his brain, because of the fluid, is first of all, built up on his optic nerve, which means the optic nerve in your brain is what communicates your brain to kind of, pro or your eyes, I guess, to process the images in your brain so you see. So if something is blocking your optic nerve with fluid, essentially there's a big blockage there and you're not able to see. So the fluid, for whatever reason, why he was having the fluid, they didn't know yet. He had fluid on his brain. It was building up, building up on his optic nerve and the pressure was growing in his head and they were very concerned um, because with that, I mean, your brain can only swell as much as it can because it's inside of your skull and then it would press down on your brainstem and your brainstem is what um, kind of controls your life functioning, your, your lungs, your heart, that type of thing. 
Um, also, anyone in the medical industry, if I mean, I might be butchering this, but this, you know, I'm not any kind of medical background whatsoever, except that this is just my recollection of what I was told growing up. So turns out he has meningitis. That's what's going on. He has viral meningitis, which they were telling my parents early on, bacterial is worse than viral. Um, many people get viral meningitis. Many people are fine after getting viral meningitis. It is not a death sentence um, to many people, um, the majority of people even, I would say. Um, for whatever reason, his body, this is the way that it was choosing to present with the meningitis. So meningitis triggered encephalitis, which is brain swelling. To relieve the pressure from his brain, they had to take him to surgery. There was no other option. Um, at the time, again, back in 2001, there were only four people in the history of, you know, a Google search that would come up with any kind of presentation like this with viral meningitis. Why it developed the way it did into encephalitis with the brain swelling. There were only four other people in history that we could find at that point that had ever had something similar happen. They told my parents that night when they took him in that um, he would not make it out of the surgery because never out of those four cases had anybody lived past that surgery. So what they had to do was remove um, pieces of his skull bone to allow more room for his brain to swell. Um, they also were putting in something called a shunt into his brain, which is something that pumps fluid out of your, of your body, of your brain. So he was having surgery to have a shunt put in his brain and to relieve the pressure on his brain by removing parts of his skull. Um, so they took him, you know, pretty much no option, just told my parents, this is what we have to do to save his life. And I'm just letting you know right now that the chances of him coming out of surgery are slim to none. Um, so at this point I'm, I had, you know, been with my sister. I was at the, I was, I had a boyfriend at the time and we were at his house kind of distracting her. And that was our, my job for the day was kind of keeping my sister occupied, um, since she was only, you know, I don't know, 12 or 11. And so that's what was going on. My parents were very confused. They didn't know what was happening. Um, and again, this seemingly came out of nowhere. Um, so they took my brother to surgery, put the shunt in, removed the pieces of his brain, and miraculously, he lived through the surgery. So he is now the first person ever <laughs> to make it through that surgery. Um, I think I came and saw him the next day. It was after surgery, most definitely. It might have been the next day or maybe that evening. I can't remember now. It's kind of foggy. And he was in intensive care, pediatric intensive care. And, you know, walking into that room with just the machines and the wires and the beeping, he was on a breathing machine to see, you know, that pumping. Um, his head was bandaged. His, the wounds were open, you know, essentially, because they didn't put a skull back on. They had sewn the skin back together, but... Um, so it was bandaged. He had a shunt coming out of that where I could see the fluid being drained off his brain. 
um, just to go from seeing somebody and joking with them walking down the stairs less than 24 hours ago to that image was probably one of the um, hardest things for me. That was one of the hardest days for me. Um, and in a lot of ways, it felt like a death in that moment because to see somebody that you are used to seeing so vibrant and for a background, my brother was life of the party, hilarious, tons of friends. Um, in fact, while he was in the hospital during his senior year, he was voted class clown. He was voted onto homecoming court. He very well liked, very funny. Um, just to see someone so full of life then to be laying there like that was just devastating, truly devastating. Um, so to kind of summarize where that all goes, for six months, my brother was in a coma. They had to induce coma on the first night because the pressure in his brain was so, so bad and so much that they wanted to shut his body down so that he could fight off the infection. The issue with the virus is that you can't give medicine for a virus. It has to run its course. You can treat symptoms and things like that, but you can't, you know, not like a bacteria where you can knock it out with an antibiotic. Um, and so they induced coma. The pressure in his brain was, you know, I would say 50 points higher, they told my parents, than what a terrible, excruciating, debilitating migraine would be for somebody who's conscious. That's how much pressure was built up in his brain. He was actually losing consciousness um, coming in and out of it because the, the pressure and the pain was so great. My brother was voted... Um, all-state baseball. He was an incredible athlete. And there were so many times over the course of his illness that the doctors told my parents if he wasn't so young and in truly peak physical condition, that there's no way he could have could have fought as hard and as long as he did. Um, so over the next six months, he is still in the hospital. My mom lived at the hospital. She came home less than five times to spend the night. Um, a lot fell on my dad's shoulders because my mom was with my brother, as any you know parent would want to be, because he was just basically there in a coma, kind of battling new twists and turns, new things that would come up, different surgeries, different tests. Was tested for everything under the sun. This was at the time where West Nile was coming out. They thought maybe he had that. They were hounding my parents about that at the hospital, you know, with the news and things like that. It was kind of intense. Um, and so for whatever reason, his viral meningitis, you know, took that presentation, made his brain swell. He had another surgery to remove another part of his skull because of that. Um, and eventually... Over the course of his illness, he had come off the breathing. He was still in a coma. And at some point, they had told my parents that he likely had brain damage. They were not able to test um, how much brain damage would be there until he was fully, you know, awake and able to be tested. Um, he had a trach put in, you know, had had, you know, bouts of having that in, taking it out. Um, just little infections with that. I mean, just so many little things over the course um, never fully came to. There were times where we would see him respond and react to us in the room. Um, but yeah, in terms of him ever truly waking up at that point, it didn't happen. 
So we lived at the hospital. My mom actually lived at the hospital and we would go over there every single day. It was kind of interesting thinking about the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 just recently because I remember um, after school that day at 9-11 um, going and watching the rest of it on a, on a TV in my brother's hospital room because that was going on while he was still in the hospital, um, which would have been his senior year. So for six months from June until December, he was in, um, you know, intensive care, was in a coma. Finally, my parents were trained to take him home to our house because otherwise he was going to need just long-term care as insurance was not covering a hospital stay anymore at that point. So my parents were trained in how to take care of him around the clock. Um, we'd have, you know, maybe nurses come in every once in a while. We had a good friend of ours coming over and doing healing energy work on him, um, and he was brought home in November, just I think after Thanksgiving or right around Thanksgiving time. And things just kept developing and he ended up dying at home um, on December 9th of 2001. So on his death certificate, what was listed was something called ADEM, which is um, abbreviated, it's short for auto-dissimilated encephalomyelitis. Um, it's a very, very, very rare, um, kind of like an autoimmune response of the brain and the brainstem to a traumatic illness. So for a prolonged traumatic illness on the body, it basically triggered like fight or flight into his autoimmune response of his brain and brainstem. So um, I guess online, the description of ADEM is characterized by a brief but widespread attack of inflammation in the brain and spinal cord that damages myelin, the protective covering of nerve fibers. It often follows a viral or bacterial infection or, or less often a vaccination for measles, mumps, or rubella. So that's what ADEM M is, and you probably have never heard of it because I have no idea what it was until my brother was um, listed that on his death certificate. But um, he died at home. That was the cause of death. Um, he just basically couldn't shake it. He had a brain infection at that point or a an autoimmune brain response, and his body just eventually gave way to all of those things. So um, he went into the hospital at 16, celebrated his 17th birthday in the hospital, and died at 17. Um, I had just turned 15. So, yeah, that's the backstory of of my brother and what happened with him at, you know, and in, into our family. I think something that people don't really understand about this COVID situation that we've taken things, I mean, I'm very seriously, like more seriously than most, more strict than most. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, most people survive it. Young people survive it. Um, children hardly get sick, things like that. And I guess the thing that people don't understand from my story specifically is when you've seen an incredibly strong, incredibly healthy teenage boy get an extremely, extremely rare illness out of nowhere. I mean, I guess the illness itself, meningitis isn't rare, but have a response that is very rare to a common virus and die and see them on a breathing machine and see them in a hospital fighting for their life and seeing what that does to your family and what that does to the to the weight of grief you carry around 
something as simple as any virus triggers that for me. And then to see something as serious as a global pandemic that sounds so similar in a lot of ways, something that, oh, might look like the flu, affects people randomly worse than others, some people healthy, some people young, even though that's not um, the norm, it is a risk that I am not willing to take for my own child or for my husband or for myself. Um, it is something that we take very seriously because I have seen the effects of a virus and, and what that can do. It's devastating. When I was working two days in March before I decided to close my books and shut down my business, um, I would come home and have panic attacks every night. And that was when I realized that I have anxiety. And now after diving through that for 18 months, I realized that anxiety is something that I've been carrying since my brother died. And maybe even before then, because I was a very sensitive child. And I look back at things now and I'm like, wow, okay, I probably had anxiety even then. Um, but I'm realizing now that um, I carried that for a long time. And I think because I was able to float above it or suppress it or mask it or whatever you want to say, I didn't even know. I thought everyone had what I had or acted how I acted or, you know, went through those same things. And once COVID hit and it rocked my world and it brought up so much, so, so, so much, especially being trapped, I don't want to say trapped because I love my family, but essentially trapped at home with a two-year-old and my anxiety and my grief and my fear, so much fear. Um, it was a huge eye-opener for me. And as much as I, this is the same thing I say about my brother and his passing and his illness, as much as I hate that it happened, same with COVID. It's been terrible for so many, including us. But there's silver linings too. You know, perspective to me is priceless. And to see what it's taught me and to see what it's brought out of me and to see resiliency and um, discovery and to find passion in this kind of work, in this podcast and talking to you and connecting with you all, um, that's priceless to me too. Just like the lessons I learned after my brother died it was a hard as hell way to learn it, but um, it was it's beneficial in a way in the long run if that's the way that it had to go down. I often say if I could say one thing to him, if I were to see him, you know, if I got five more minutes, I would think I would tell him thank you. Because the lessons that his life and death imparted me with have given me some of the most rich understanding and empathy and sensitivity and understanding and love that I could have ever imagined. And that to me is worthy of a thank you. I mentioned that I grew up Catholic and I am not religious as I mentioned in the first episode at all. 
but oftentimes I think of the story of Jesus, if you're familiar, that, you know, he sacrificed himself to save, you know, the world, if you will. That's what Catholics believe. And for me, I'm a very spiritual person, not religious-based. And I think a lot of religious stories or beliefs are analogies for greater, you know, theories in, in the universe and in, in theories of thought. And to me, I picture my brother almost as a Jesus of sorts, that he came to touch lives and go out the way he did as a catalyst for so many people and as a gift to save us from ourselves, to teach us the lessons that our souls on this journey in this lifetime needed. And I have to think of it as something bigger than my grief and myself. It doesn't mean that I'm not still sad. It doesn't mean that I'm happy that it happened. But I just think about what an amazing purpose that his soul was called to. And that I'm so lucky to have been given the opportunity for that growth. And I had a choice. And I still have a choice every day to look at it that way. And that's how I've learned to make peace with that situation. Um, so needless to say, I was off work for a long time, um, and I'm just now stepping back into the world with my new business and finding some comfort in it, finding some excitement in it. Um, there's still a lot of fear there, but realizing that, you know, it's time and that my son's going to school and we've prepared him the best way we can. He's masked. He knows the rules. I'm going back to work with, you know, my protocols in place and what I feel comfortable with and kind of trusting the universe in that way. Um, it doesn't help that when I was pregnant with my son, I, we were high risk for other reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk about on another episode because who's got 10 hours to spend with me today? Um, and when he was born, he was taken to the NICU, which was something I did not expect. I wasn't kept away from him for a long time. I, I barely got to see him the day that he was born. I didn't get to hold him for a whole day. Um, and that was after begging the NICU nurses and pretty much, you know, using my voice in a way that I was not comfortable with, hello people pleasers, um, to get them to let me hold my son. And seeing him in there for breathing complications, to hear the beeping, to hear the crying, to see the machines, to um, watch the monitors to make sure that your baby's okay, was hard for any any parent, any person who loves a child that's going through that. But especially in light of what happened to my brother and that day, that first day that I saw him after his surgery. And that was something that um, I just wasn't uh, prepared for when that happened when my son was born. And then that kind of launched me into a world of postpartum anxiety. And not realizing it maybe till he was about a year old about um, why even the littlest thing would turn into me thinking he was going to die or that I was going to miss something. It took me until right around his year mark where I thought, you know, maybe that's not normal <laughs> or I don't want to say normal because what is normal, but maybe, maybe other parents don't constantly think about their kid dying if they get a cold. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so that was, that. it's been a lot. It's been a whirlwind for sure. Dealing with my own stuff, dealing with his stuff. Even like I said, when I was reading about ADEM off of the internet, you see that it can even be, encephalitis can be a response and therefore ADEM can be a response to even vaccinations. And I'm not on here as an anti-vaxxer. We are COVID vaccinated. We do the shots for my son. We believe in science. Um, but there was a good deal of anxiety every time I would take my son in for va routine vaccinations. And I would actually say to my doctor, who I love so dearly, and I would say to her, or not my doctor, his doctor, his pediatrician, I would say, okay, you know I'm going to do this. You know that we're going to get the shots. You know that we believe in this. But can you just remind me one more time really quick why I'm doing this? And then she would explain to me, you know, how they work and what happens. And honestly, like, I would just hold my breath for a couple days after. Watching for any kind of sign that, you know, there was any kind of reaction. Because even with my brother, with Scott's illness, there was nothing that said that it wasn't genetic. You know, I mean, we still don't really know why. We don't know how we got it. We don't know why he got it. We don't know why it went that way. I mean, to this day, there is a biopsy of his brain tissue at the CDC for comparison's sake and testing because it was keeping neurologists, you know, neurosurgeons, the doctors from across the country, literally, all over the country were staying up at night trying to figure out what was going on with him. It was that rare. And who's to say that we're not more prone to, you know, a vaccine reaction with encephalitis because my brother had that. I don't know. And I still don't know. Um, even with the COVID thing, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. And I'm not trying to figure it out because it was, it was hell, truly hell. Um, so yeah, it's been a lot of my past stuff my own mothering stuff, the high-risk pregnancy stuff with my son, his high needs, medical issues with him, my anxiety, cue pandemic, blah, 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 blah. And it's been a lot. And I know that there's people out there listening to this podcast right now that are in it with me. You feel the same way. I have so many friends that have just lost people close to them, parents, um, friends that have lost siblings. Um, people that are going through medical issues with their children. I mean, I see it and I see you, people that are struggling, um, even people that aren't parents and you've lost siblings or you have, you know, lost a parent or you're going through it. I see you. I get it. Um, our struggles might not be identical, but, you know, I think the human feelings behind it all can be the same. That being said, if you are listening to this and you'd like to write in with your story, I would love to hear it. I'd love to read it on the air or not. If you just want to share, um, you can always DM me on Instagram at grow.up.ig. You can shoot me an email at thegrowuppod at gmail.com and just let me know. Just let me know how this is landing for you. Give me your thoughts on it. Tell me what's going on with you. Um, that being said, I had um, my new friend, Sarah, that's what I'm going to call her because she's reached out to me um, through DMs a little bit. And uh, we just seem to have a lot of similarities, Sarah and I, um, the way our stories parallel or just our feelings about it all. And um, I mentioned to her like, hey, if you want to share, write me an email. So she did. 
and I can't wait to read it to you and I have it here with me right now. So I'm going to read you Sarah's email. Um, I think it will strike a lot of chords on a lot of levels for so many listeners out there. So um, without further ado, let's read an email from Sarah. She said, I'm going to touch on some stuff I already shared on Instagram, but I wanted to dive a little deeper on the subject of grief. I found your podcast after finding the Only You podcast and listening to the show you were on. Yay! Um, Shout out, if those of you didn't know I was on another person's podcast, I was on the Only You podcast with Jess and Pierce, not Ann Pierce, Pierce is usually the co-host. I co-hosted that episode um, with Jess instead of Pierce. I think it's episode 38, um, if I remember correctly, but if not, um, pop over there and give it a listen. Um, It was... I thought it was a pretty good episode about grief and things like that. So it might you might be able to relate if you're relating to this conversation as well. She continues, a little over two, year, two years ago, we decided to try for a sibling. Up until that point, we had been one and done for a little over three years. But as parenthood got easier, we changed our minds. I went on to have three miscarriages. In an attempt to get mentally prepared to try again, I found some one and done posts on Instagram. It was really to get into a better place so if I had another failed pregnancy, I would be more appreciative of my only child. But I found so much joy, relief, and a new space that my mind has shifted to what if I never try again? Will that be bad? I I have an even deeper appreciation of what I do have and how I can cultivate happiness in the right now. You talked about living in the present in episode two. It's so much a yes for me. Part of me learning to be happier in the moment is also healing from my childhood. I want to be a better parent than I was given. My parents were great, but my dad was negative, occasionally aggressive. For a young, tender mind, it was really difficult to navigate. And now as a parent, I now realize the tremendous amount of grief my parents carried with them when they lost my twin brother. I don't know how that affected some of the less positive things I remember about my childhood. For me, he was often talked about. We went to his grave whenever there was a rainbow on summer days. I was told that he was looking over me. I always felt peace when thinking about him. Sometimes I wonder if we would have been close, if he would have have been the best uncle to Dylan. I know twins are so tight. I have other siblings, but I wonder if my twin was here, if we would have that magical twin bond. And I wonder what my son would be like as a sibling, what our, what our lost sister or brother would have been like. Would they have been quieter and an easier sleeper? Would they have been another wild man or lady? But such is life, and for now I embrace the life I have and the family that is here now. I am committed to love them with my whole heart, but to save space for me if and when I need it for grief. Hope to talk to you soon. Sarah. And she even put a moon emoji next to her name. And that means that we are definitely best friends. Thank you, Sarah, for your awesome email. Um, I want to start by saying I'm so sorry about your infertility struggle. Um, I think they call that secondary infertility, where you have, you know, a successful or, you know, viable pregnancy, and then you struggle with infertility afterward. Um, So I'm so sorry about that. That is something that... I can only imagine, I've never had that happen to me directly, but I can only imagine how absolutely painful that is. And I, and I know firsthand that there are a lot of people listening, um, to this podcast or on this platform that do know what that feels like. So again, I encourage anybody, if you have infertility, you know, 
journey struggles that you would like to share about the grief or about the perspective that's given you, please, by all means, write in. Um, I can only imagine what that feels like and how hard that is. And like you said, trying to mentally prepare, you know, going in with that hope that maybe this time it will be different, but also saving room for that grief because you know what that feels like. Um, the only thing I can even come close to imagining with that in my own struggle was, you know, when I had our high-risk pregnancy and we were told early on that there might be genetic issues with my son and um, kind of that weird space of being so excited that I was pregnant, but also having so much fear and unknown in my heart at the same time and how that almost felt like it robbed a little bit of the joy sometimes. And I can only imagine that that's exactly what it feels like, that even if you do get pregnant, you're holding your breath because you know exactly what that feels like. And I just am so sorry that um, that grief of miscarriage is tied so closely with something as wonderful as being pregnant. Um, so I can only imagine. Um, I love that you said that you were able to found, find community and find joy and relief in a new space. I think that really ties into having flexibility and um, just realizing that this is not going the way that you saw. You know, no one starts off life and it's like, okay, I'm going to have one kid, then I'm going to have three miscarriages, then I'm going to change directions. I mean, that's not on anyone's agenda. So I think, you know, realizing that this is the hand that you've been dealt and having the flexibility to find something that works for you and your and your struggle and your family and I think it's something we talked about in the last episode about staying present and tearing up the script and realizing that you know what it's not better or worse this is my situation and how can I find something that includes me a narrative that includes me that feels good, that feels peaceful, that feels relieving instead of holding myself to some script that I wrote when I was in a totally different place in my life. Or maybe the script that society has given me, maybe the script that my parents have embedded in me just, you know, by default, you know, growing up in society. I think it's so um, necessary sometimes to kind of have a check-in and almost like realize what's working and what's not and how can we change a situation? In your situation, you can't. Miscarriages happen. There's nothing you did. There's nothing you didn't do. How can then you find peace? What does that look like? And I think it would look different for everybody, but I think, you know, finding a space where you can find that relief, where you feel in community and you feel understood and you feel like you're not oppressing yourself. You're allowing your journey to unfold as it's unfolding and you're rolling with the feelings. And I think that that's just so brilliant and I applaud you for that. Um, I really resonated with the part about healing from your own childhood, um, just as I discussed with my brother. I mean, that is stuff. At that moment when all of that went down with Scott, my brother, everything died. You know, he died. My family unit died. The relationship was different between all family members, the relationship between my parents, the relationship between, you know, me and my mom, me and my dad, um, just my relationship with my own um, innocence. I mean, everything, so much changes in the blink of an eye and everyone's just doing the best that they can. Do I hold, you know, any kind of resentment for the way that things were handled for me as a child on my parents' end? Of course not. They were dealing with the unimaginable. Could it have been better for me individually as a person? Absolutely. 
could things have been done differently, you know, had I been, you know, knowing my own needs or anything like that? Absolutely. Did I handle it the most effectively and healthily? No, absolutely not. Um, but we all do the best that we can. And I think um, it comes out when it needs to come out and things in our life will trigger us. And it just brings it all to the surface and shows you like, here's all the junk. Let's clean out that closet and find little storage bins and put it all in a, you know, in a spot where it belongs. Let's go through all the stuff, you know, just like when you're cleaning out for a garage sale. <laughs> it's just like, let's dig it all up and let's sort it all out because it never went anywhere. It's just been accumulating. Um, I think when you talk about your dad being negative and aggressive and you're realizing now that there was so much grief they were carrying, um, I think it's really interesting that you're carrying kind of that, um, juxtaposition of healthy son that you love so much as an only child, but grief for the children that you wanted to have or the siblings you wanted to give your son or the opportunity to be a sibling that you wanted to give to your son, um, just the same way your parents carried the joy of having you and the grief of losing your twin. Um, I, I truly can't imagine. I would imagine, and I would love to hear from you again or somebody else out there, is there some kind of survivor's guilt there? Um, and I'm sure that answer might be different for everybody, but feeling like it could have been me. What if, you know? Um almost feeling like I think as children, we try to make our parents happy all the time and to sense that there was some kind of sadness or grief there. Did it feel like you should have done things differently? Or what if my my twin did make it? Would they be happier with me? Am I a reminder of the twin that they lost? I mean, these are questions that when I was reading, I'm wondering if those ever go through your head and what a heavy burden those would be to carry. Um, I think that thought of thinking of, you know, your, your twin brother that passed about wondering if, you know, what would he be like? Would he be close? You know, twins do have that inseparable bond. Would we have that? What would our dynamic be? How would I be different? How would our family be different? What if my parents weren't carrying that kind of grief? What if we all, you know, never knew that sadness? Would our family dynamic be different? Would our relationship be better? Would it be different? I mean, that's stuff that I think about all the time, literally constantly. What would that look like if that never happened? If I didn't carry this around, you know, in a backpack for the last 20 years, you know, would I have more freedom to fully be? Um, it's just such a heavy, heavy thought. And I'm with you on that. Thinking about him being an uncle to your son. I mean, oh, that just hits me so deep. Um, my son's middle name is Scott after my brother. And um, I know I talked a little bit about um, the visit to the cemetery this year and the questions my son had surrounding that. But yeah, just it's funny how someone that could shape so much of your life. And for me, it was living with my brother for, you know, 15 years of my life for you it was sharing a womb with your brother and maybe somatically carrying around that grief as opposed to having memories of him you know in in your mind but maybe your body remembers him you know um but yeah I think carrying that ar around and just wondering about how, you know, that would affect your child, having the uncle and the dynamic between all of you. And I, I just could not resonate with that more. I just think that that is such a real thought and a real struggle. I think the what ifs when you lose somebody are just can be debilitating. And a lot of times they come out of nowhere like a wave, 
you know, just having a, a good Tuesday and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, it just comes to you and um, it can knock you to your knees for sure. I think a lot resonated with me in the one and done camp because same with my son. I mean, I always think about how close my brother and I were specifically and I always think about is not giving him a sibling, sparing him you know, the grief and the heartache, because I have so much of that tied to me and my sibling experience? Or is it depriving him of one of the best things and the special bonds that I had? And I think at the end of the day, I have to stop thinking of it as a gift for my son and start thinking of it as a health for his mom. And I know for myself that having another child at this point um, is something that would put me over the edge and that I think it is much more important for me and my journey with my my child and my husband to give him healthy parents as opposed to giving him a sibling. Um, but I'm with you. I always think like, who would this other child be if I gave him a sibling? What if they were so easy? What if they were this easygoing baby? What if our birth wasn't so hard? Would it be redemptive? Would I feel like I I got a second chance and I and I did it right, quote unquote, because I still have so much surrounding his birth experience that feels traumatic to me. Um, it's just all these what ifs. And I and I and I so resonated with you saying that, that, you know, such is life. Here we are just carrying all these things around. And a lot of people, when they just come up and like, oh, you only have one kid or oh, whatever. People don't know what that's touching. And I hope if nothing else, this just sheds a little bit of light that, there's more that goes into decisions on family planning than just what you want and what you thought you were going to have. And people need to realize that, that it's it's not just as easy as everyone wants to make it out to be. Um, there's fertility, there's mental health struggles, and honestly, it's no one's business. Maybe you just don't want to, and that's fine too. There's space for everything, and especially, like you said in your last line, there's always space for grief. And I think until we leave space for grief, um, I just don't think it's going to keep coming up. It's going to keep coming up in different ways. For me this year, or not this year, but last year, it was the pandemic, and it brought with it so much. I mean, I thought I had sliced and diced and dissected and, you know, therapied my way out of all my feelings, you know, involving my brother. And um, I realize now that there was so much there that I left uncovered and so much there that affects me in so many other ways. And when my son was born, new places of my identity and my role that were touched by my grief and my trauma. Um, And it still continues. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part. It's that feeling of, is this just going to be it forever? Am I always going to be carrying this around? And holy shit, it's so tiring. Um, so yeah, thank you again, Sarah, for that. It was such an interesting email. And, um, again, my heart just goes out to you in so many ways and we would love a follow, follow up, um, for some of those questions. If you feel the energy and so inclined to do that with that, (laughs) such a long episode. Thank you for listening, everybody. I feel like I could talk about this stuff forever and ever and ever because it has shaped so much of my past, um, and my present and future for that matter. But, um, Again, if this resonated with you, if you need to reach out, I would love to hear from you. The way to do that is on my DM on Instagram at grow.up.ig and also a Gmail account, thegrowuppod at gmail.com. The last thing I want to leave you with is just a quick um, 
I guess it's a poem or a quote. It's from an Instagram account called at comfy dark me. And it says, I sit with my grief. I mother it. I hold its small, hot hand. I don't say shh. I don't say it's okay. I wait until it's done having feelings. Then we stand and we go wash the dishes. I love that. I think it talks a lot or speaks a lot to just the normalcy of grief, how we carry it throughout every day. It could be something as simple as washing dishes. <laughs> you start thinking of, you know, somebody or something um, and just how it doesn't go away and that it demands to be acknowledged and it will make it so. If you keep pushing it down and you keep pushing it down and pushing it down and putting that lid on it, it'll find a way. So I encourage you to make some space for your grief and for your feelings. And in that same way, we can make um, space in our life for the people that we love and their feelings with our children, with our spouses, with our partners, with our friends, with our family. Um, I think that there's room for all that. So until next time, thanks for being here, everybody, and keep growing up. Keep doing the work. Talk to you later. Thank you.